Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Rich Sab. Rich is a Saddlebrook, New Jersey black belt under Chris Howder. Rich is a fantastic regular instructor for the BJJ Globetrotters. He's an actor, one hell of a musician, and just a great guy. Rich has two BJJ Fanatics videos entitled Lapel Art and Control Advance Attack. In this episode, Rich opens up about his concerns on the direction of BJJ, how he has dealt with his anxiety in BJJ, his avid use of the whiteboard, why the hip bump sweep is not accurately named, and so, so much more. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show and consider becoming a patron at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt. That really, really helps. Like our Facebook page to get all the latest at facebook.com forward slash forever white belt and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. And also check us out on TikTok at forever white belt. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And with that, I give you rich sap. So you are quite the Renaissance man. When I did my research on you, it's like so many interesting stories to your life and, and where you're at right now. How did it all start with jujitsu? Okay, well, I started off with karate and then taekwondo and Muay Thai. Like most people, you know, outside of New York City, there really wasn't much uh, jujitsu going on in the area. So uh, we had we had a guy come in to do a seminar, 2001 maybe, and uh, we, we you know we really enjoyed it. So he was in White Plains, New York, which is maybe 45 or so minutes from us, and he had one of his purple belts come in every Saturday, and we just started doing jujitsu once a week, and then we would practice during the week what we learned and. It just continued to grow and grow and grow. So it's yeah. 2001, like a purple belt. That was a big deal. Well, yeah, he, 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 the dude who came in as the purple belt, it was like, you know, there, there wasn't many of them around. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah. not even, not, not way back then. No. Yeah. It was a totally different world back then. And so you have your black belt under uh, Joe Moreno, correct? Or Moriano? Yeah. Currently that's who I got my black belt and my first degree from, but I, I'm no longer part of that team. So let's talk about that. There's so many of you guys like these sort of floating black belts, right? That are out yeah. there. And a lot of you guys have found your place with the uh, Globetrotters too. Yeah. So who? let's talk about who, who are you under now? Howder, right. right? So right now I'm, I'm with Chris. Yeah, Chris Howder. Okay. Um, what happened was my story I thought was unique. And the more people I meet, the more common my story becomes. I know you had Matt on not too long ago and very Happy similar peak. story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Very, very similar story. Mm -hmm. I had uh, my main instructor who owned the academy. He didn't like a lot of the things I was doing as far as traveling and doing some of the seminars and all the globe trotter stuff. And, you know, as a 50 year old man, I'm not going to ask anyone for permission to do anything. <laughs> I'm going to do what I, what I feel I want to do. Right? right. So uh, we didn't see eye to eye on that. And that caused a split between me and him. And he was the one who brought Joe into our Joe Marrera into our school. Wow. So naturally leaving him meant leaving Joe as well. So I stayed with Chris, the first Arizona camp. I stayed with Chris for a couple of days and I, so I sat and talked with him and I explained my whole story to him, how everything went down. And, and he's like, well, you know, if, if what you have isn't a fixable situation anymore and you want to come on then you know, you're more than welcome. So I, I spent a little bit of time trying to see if my relationship was fixable mm -hmm. with Joe not with the other guy, but with Joe. Sure. And 
it didn't work out because of the situation. So I eventually just made the move and went over. It's amazing how common this is and how many of you guys are, and that there are black belts out there at that time when you were sort of transitioning to, you know, another, to be under someone else, how often this situation is and that there are black belts out there taking these, these islands of these Ronins, right? Floating around there. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very unfortunate that someone would think that because they trained under you or, or you trained under them, whatever, that you can't go out and train with other people and travel around and, and learn from different people and, and spread what you're learning with other people. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a dying mindset now, right? I, I would think so, but I keep here. I hear more and more stories all the time, you know? So you're in Saddlebrook, New Jersey, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Are you involved in the jujitsu scene there at all? or The gym where I, I originally trained at, the owner who I no longer speak with, he sold the gym to you know another one of the students there who is one of my best friends and uh i still teach and train at the same gym <laughs> the irony right yeah, yeah it's they're, they're still there's still a joe Moreira jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. program but um me and him are, are, are really close friends and i'm going to continue to teach the same jiu-jitsu that i learned and it's not like you're two different jiu-jitsus it's jiu-jitsu right mm-hmm. you know i still train there i still teach there i do privates in his gym you know we, me and him still have a great relationship and uh yeah we're it's right in here in Salabrook. And I like to, you know, travel as much as I can to to teach and to learn. Can you tell me about the Saddlebrook scene? It's it's so bizarre how much jujitsu is out there and how many greats <laughs> and talent just ex- exploded out there. How did, how did that occur? Okay, well, um, Saddlebrook is in Bergen County, New Jersey. Bergen County is right outside of New York City, so we're, we're right outside of. I'm like eight miles from the George Washington Bridge, which brings you into basically into Manhattan. So Manhattan has always been. Jiu-Jitsu has been in Manhattan for a while, and mm-hmm. it's basically, for the most part, this is like Henzo territory. Mm-hmm. There's lots of Henzo Gracie schools around the area. There's mm-hmm. lots of different ones popping up all over mm-hmm. now. Sure, Marcelo's, yeah. Mar- yeah, in the city, Marcelo. There's not many Marcelo mm-hmm. affiliates in this no, area. No, you're right. But uh, there's a ton of Gracie's. Like, we're on the main street, right? goes right through the middle of town, and two blocks up is another academy that's a Henzo affiliate. I was looking at a, a map. One day, I just typed in Jiu-Jitsu Academies and looked at my map to see what towns around here were open if I like wanted to do something. And pretty much every town has at least one Jiu-Jitsu Academy in it now. Wow. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty flooded in this area. There's quite a bit. Wow. And, and for the most part, it's all good too, you know? It's just bizarre what a concentration of talent there is there, you know, in black belts. There's a lot. Yeah. There's no shortage of black belts in this area. Well, I should give the listeners some context. I met Rich in Arizona at a BJJ Globetrotters camp. I'm sure most of you out there probably know, you know, I've been featuring a lot of BJJ Globetrotters instructors that Rich is one of the BJJ Globetrotter instructors. And you had a couple of fantastic classes. The one I, I loved the opening, the closed guard class that you had there. I'm curious, how did you get involved with them in, in your evolution with Globetrotters? The Globetrotter story is funny. I, I told it to Christian one day, too. I don't even know if he remembers, but I had heard a story listening to a podcast. I had heard a, a story about a book called Cauliflower Chronicles, which was about a guy who went to Hawaii. He, he was going to college or whatever, and he wanted to train with BJ Penn. So he was in Hawaii and he just tells this whole story in this book. So I heard about this book and I wanted to buy it. So I went on Amazon. And I searched Cauliflower Chronicles and I found it and I put it into my my shopping cart, right? And in, in true Amazon fashion, they said, well, if you like this, you might like this. So <laughs> the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Globetrotter popped up and I was like, hey, yeah, I probably would like that, right? So <laughs> I threw that one into my uh, shopping cart as well, right? 
and bought both books. So uh, the books came. I read the cauliflower one first because that's what I was looking for. And when I finished that, I started reading the Globetrotter book, which blows the other one away. I mean, nothing against that guy, but it's just so much more compelling the story, right? Mm. And as I started reading it, I started like going online as I'm reading it and looking up stuff and looking up Christian and the Globetrotters and, you know, found the, the website and found out that he's having all these camps and stuff. And I was talking to my girlfriend about it. And as a Christmas gift, she got me a ticket to the, it wasn't Maine yet. It was in New Hampshire. It was the second U.S. camp in New Hampshire. What happened was Christian didn't make it to that camp because his son was being born. So it was my first Globetrotter camp. And, and like, I think that's the only camp Christian ever missed. <laughs> ironically right so yeah. uh i loved it and everything and i just kept going and then when i met him the first year we went to maine because we left new hampshire and went to maine mm -hmm. and in between i expressed it to him i wrote him a, an email saying hey i was at the camp sorry i missed you i'd love to become an instructor at camp if you want i could send you a video or we could talk whatever you know mm -hmm. and his response was kind of what i expected me i know i appreciate it but i have a unique problem i have too many instructors and not enough spaces for everybody but, you know, keep in touch and we'll see if something could happen in the future. So the first camp in Maine, which was my second camp, I didn't mention it to him. He was there, but I, I didn't talk to him about it at all. I just went about doing my thing. And we all went out one night and I was just like hanging out. And he came over by me and said, hey, listen, you passed the test. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know I was being tested. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, yeah, I was just watching you to see, you know, um, how you interact with everybody and how social you are and he goes, I want to make sure that instructors really want to be here and not just coming so they could teach. And I, I don't know if they had issues with somebody before or what, but he wants to make sure that all the instructors really want to be part of it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and they aren't just trying to go there and just teach and whatever. Mm -hmm. So he invited me at that point. He said, let me know what camp you want to teach at and, uh, and we'll go from there. And, That's interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, you do need to be like a socially sort of adept individual, which you seem to be. You can just talk with anyone. I try, man. Yeah, I, I, I do. I try. I wasn't always that way. And that was actually part of the reason why I wanted to go to the camp. Although I do like the band stuff and I'm in front of people a lot and teaching here, I always yeah. had like an anxiety, you know, like social anxiety. Or, yeah. Uh, so when Rich and, uh, mentions the band, he, he's a musician as well. So I, I wanted to get over that, right? So I figured yeah. what better way to get over it than go to a jiu-jitsu camp with, I think it was like 120 or 150 people, whatever. Mm-hmm stay in a cabin with 10 people sharing a bathroom. If this yeah. doesn't get me over it, nothing will. <laughs> and and I, I've always been good with talking with people. Well, that's but, what I wanted to ask you is what, what's the difference between you teaching, instructing in front of a classroom, you know, full of people who want to learn BJJ versus what you're doing at, at a Globetrotters. There's not, there's no difference. It's like being in a crowd, being in a crowd yeah. would like trigger an anxiety for me. Yeah. And I, I thought you were going to ask that question differently. Cause I've been asked before, you know, if you have this anxiety being in a crowd, how can you get in front of a class and teach like that? Or how, so how can, can you, you? Yeah. in a band, how, can, how you? can you get up on the stage? Yeah. The yeah. thing is, I'm in control of that situation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, everyone's there to listen to me. And I know everyone's there for me. And, and I got control over the situation, whereas I'm not just in like a big group. As a fellow musician, then, do you find it like I always I always found it more difficult to do like a gig in front of a more intimate setting versus a bigger crowd? I've never had issue with that. Wow. I've only had anxiety once as a musician performing. There was one show where I had like a real bad anxiety attack. And oddly enough, it was like in the middle of my career when I was in like my, my most successful band ever. And we were doing a show and I don't know what happened, but it just, it triggered. And I like, I didn't know what to do. 
I, wow. I couldn't even like remember the song. So I had to like basically just watch the one guitar player all night. Didn't oh, know even what to play, you know? Oh man. Was, uh, but that was the only, that was the only time that happened with music. That's strange because I guess strange is a, not a great way to character, a good way to characterize it because you do speak in front of people so often and you do interact yeah. with so many like uh, strangers or people you just met or don't even know at these various camps in literally all over the world. Yeah. The, the funny thing too is like, and I experienced it with you as well. When I first met you, you kind of knew a little bit about me. Yeah. So yeah. w- when I do the Globetrotter thing, although I'm meeting a lot of people for the first time, they know a little bit about me because I've been doing the Globetrotters for so long now. And you know, yeah. they, our bios are up on the Globetrotter site. We have videos up now and there's a lot out there. So even though I'm meeting people for the first time, it's almost like their familiarity with me gives me a familiarity with them real quick. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, yeah, it does. One thing I'm curious about with the camps is how you organize your ideas for a camp, you know, your class offerings. I know, I know that the attendees vote for what they want to attend, but just to backtrack, how do you even come up with the ideas of what you want to teach? And then obviously you need to get clever with the naming too, right? So it appeals to the attendee. I guess that's part of the trick if, you know, the listeners well, out there don't know. Originally, the naming wasn't like as, as fancy as it is now, right? Yeah, so- yeah. What happened was like, you would just call the class what it is. And then one time, like Aaron Milan from Portland, he called the class squirrels. All he said was squirrels. Nothing else, no explanation, nothing, just squirrels. And it got the most votes out of everything on the list. So, so since then- Oh, I, I, now I understand. The title of the class, he called it squirrels. Okay. Squirrels. And since then, like people have been coming up with clever names. As far as how I get my ideas, I do privates a lot. And I typically do a private- if I'm doing a private you for the first time, I'll ask you what you want to work on. If you're like, oh, I don't know, I just want to you know, improve a little bit, I'll just start rolling with you. And from rolling with you, I'll see what I'll take what I take out of that role and say, hey, let's work on this. Or if you have any questions, hey, this happened. How did that happen? Or how did this happen? So I have one guy who I've been doing privates with for, for quite a while now. And I find when I work with him, there's a big tendency of something that seems simple and then Two months later, we're we're in this rabbit hole still where we're going off of this one technique of different ways to set it up where that leads to. One of the classes I'm developing now is on the elevator sweep. Can you describe the elevator sweep real quick for listeners? The elevator sweep is if if you're in my closed guard, basically I get your hands off me. I get control of one hand. I sit up and reach over to control that same arm, post up on my hand, drive my hips up into you and take you to the arm that I have trapped. I don't know if I'm making sense when I say that or not. Well, some people call that right. The hip bump sweep. If Some people call it a hip bump. I'm not sure okay. I agree with that naming, but okay. yeah. So I started working on this with him and it just started going into a place where, okay, if this fails, I can do this. I could do this off of it. There's just so many different avenues that that leads down. I, yeah, I, I sure. like to look at it as, I like to look at jujitsu as a roadmap. I got my starting point, which we'll, we'll call closed guard. And then I have my destination, which let's call mount, right? my straight line is I do that sweep, right? So in the middle of that line, I'd have elevator sweep. So close guard, elevator sweep, mount. And now off of that straight line, I have all these different exits that go off to, into all these different endless options. Yeah, sure. sure. So from doing privates with this one guy and all these rabbit holes we end up going down mm-hmm. is basically how I come up with most of the ideas for the classes I want to, uh, I want to, I want to teach, you know? So what are you doing? Are you documenting all this? Like are you debriefing after every? In the academy, we have a big whiteboard hanging up. And as I'm working with him, we'll start doing things. And every so often I get up and I start, I just map it out on this big whiteboard. 
Gotcha. And then I, I usually just take a picture of that and I have right. a, a book in, that I keep at home and I, I document everything and I just continuously work on developing it and try and get deeper and deeper into it. Now, you mentioned privates. I, I know that seems to be the core. It looks like part of your business, right? As well as all kinds of other things you advise on, like personal training and nutrition and all this stuff. Can you give us suggestions for someone who's new to privates? How can they come prepared? What can make it easy for you? What do you suggest they research and to get the most out of privates? From the person taking the private? Both. Okay. So what I, as an instructor, if someone comes to me and says, Hey, I'd like to take privates. The first thing I ask is, is there some specific you want to work on that you need to work on? You want to learn. And a lot of the times the answer is no. So, uh, okay. So let's just, let's just roll a little bit and okay. we'll just do like a light little roll. And from that, usually you can tell what that person needs or if, it goes in a certain direction and you get to a point where someone, you know, they're not sure or they make a wrong move. Okay. So let's address that now. And the more you do that, the more you get to know somebody and what they need to, I try and make it what you want to do. It's your private, you're paying for it. So for me to say to you, this is what you need. I don't necessarily think that's the right way to go with it right, because right. I want you to be happy with what's going on. So you probably, what if you get like a scenario like myself, someone like myself, middle-aged guy, the knees aren't so great anymore, you know, not super explosive, 170 pounder. What are like the starting points? You know, what are the ideas in that profile? So you're basically, you just described me as well. I'm a little bit past middle age. But I'm usually between 170, 180. My knees, I've had several surgeries. I've had sh shoulder surgeries. So I, I got lots of little issues as well. So what I would suggest is, hey, what's your game? What do you like to play? Mm -hmm. If you're like me, I don't like no gi at all. I like to wear a gi all the time because I can slow the game down as much as I need to. And I lately, a thing I've been liking to do is play from closed guard. When I learned coming up, I learned a lot of stuff from closed guard. You know, sure. it's, it wasn't like it is now back then, right? So it, it, was, it was much more fundamental coming up. You know, the whole mm -hmm. way the leg game has developed and you know, everybody wants to be a leg locker all of a sudden. Yeah. We, we learn fundamentals in a, in, a, in a different way, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, over the years, you know, you learn so much, you like, you kind of get away from stuff. So I kind of tried to circle back and start working my closed guard game again, because I want to slow the game down as much as I could. If I can't be on top of you, if I'm on top of you, I just try and play as much pressure as I possibly can. Okay. If I'm underneath you, I want you in my closed guard for the most part. And mm -hmm. and from there, I, I've worked on like a whole series of attacks. It's another class I've been trying to do at, at a globe trier camp, but it hasn't been voted on yet. I just called it remove the arm. And it's all about getting someone's arm across their uh, center line of their body mm. from a closed guard position. It, it translates yeah. to everywhere. You know, think if you're standing up an arm drag, it translates from any position, but I, mm. I want to teach it from closed guard. So what I would do is I would basically roll with you, see where you're at, see what you're trying to do and just try and bring the best out of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that I feel you could add to that, which would enhance that, then just try and present it to you and, and go from there. So you're like a doctor doing a diagnosis then sort of. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Take the car out for a test drive and see what's yeah. wrong with it. You know, yeah, not yeah. that there's anything wrong with it, but see what we can do to improve it, right? Yeah. No, I love that. Take the arm out. We got to come up with a better name, you know, like raccoon or something like that for that. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that opens up the side guard, right? It's right there and you got everything, right? Clamp guard, some people call it or whatever. I basically, what I usually do is I never called it side guard, but I, mm -hmm. I know what you're saying. So mm -hmm. a lot of times I'll try and get it because it sets up attacks. It sets up a lot of attacks. If I can get that arm straight, it sets up arm attacks. It sets up chokes. It sets up easy sweeps because right. you don't have a post anymore. 
You and, can go and to the back also, too. And it also sets up the back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's another one you could spend like months in it. Now, I want to get back to I'm curious about why not the hip bump sweep, the naming itself. I don't view it as so much of a bump. I think I learned it as an elevator sweep like 20 years ago. So when I analyze it and I break it down and I describe it, I actually talk about how a lot of people call it a hip bump, but I don't really necessarily call it a bump. because. So the way I describe it is to do a sweep, you have to take away two posts or you need to take away one post and change an angle, right? So what the elevator sweep does is it, it takes away, basically it's taking away two posts and changing an angle. But what really makes it work is me underneath you elevating my hips. It's not so much I'm trying to bump into you quite as much. I'm elevating my hips to try and get you back on your ankles, right? So if you're mm-hmm. on your knees and you're, and I could get your weight to sit back on, all the way back onto your ankles. And then as I just, I kind of like drop and the rotate. Twist, right? Yeah. yeah. It's not the bump that's really making the hip, the, the sweep work. It's the rotation off of yeah. taking you on you. I'm sitting you back and then rolling you. And it all works because I'm elevating my hips right into your chest. So to me, it's the elevation that makes the sweep work, not so much a, a quick bump. I've tried to do it through years of trial and error. I've tried to do it where I just bump up and I always end up right back on my back. But when I, when I slow the pace down a little bit and I isolate that arm really well, and, and drive my hips up and then I drop the one, whichever side I'm going to, I drop that leg a little bit as well and yeah. then get that rotation without bumping, but which is elevating. I find I'm more successful with it. It's so funny that we're discussing this fundamental move, right? It, it, <laughs> this is it's so uh, effective. Yeah. And there, there's so much that comes off of that as well. There's so many bailouts if you fail, because it's, it's an easy one to you know, if, if you're on top of me, I mean, basically all you need to do is drive into me. I mean, you could prevent me from getting up a good post on my arm to be able to elevate. And as you drive me back down, there's just so many different directions I can go with it too. So I started doing this in a private and next thing I know, I'm like, I'm, I'm writing on the board and I got like all these like roadmaps going in different directions. And I look mm. at it, I'm like, I never realized how many different avenues that sweep can go down. Do you do that a lot? Do you like workflow out various techniques? I do. Everything I do when I do my privates, everything I do goes on that whiteboard. You just kind of mind map it? Initially, I, I have a notebook, right? And I'll right. write down what I want to do and I start writing down thoughts of where I'm going to go off of it. And what typically ends up happening is I have all these things, but I have no specific way to get to them. So like, I know like from here, I could get to here, but there's this, 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 and this in the middle. So like when I'll write it now, I'll go look at it and I'll, I'll go with the partner and start working it through. And then I put it into a more uh, realistic order. I don't know if realistic order is the right way to say it, but for your game. Yeah, sure. Yeah. In, in my mind, it's, it's the way it makes the most sense. Right. Like, uh, So I'm going to do the elevator sweep. The way I, I typically teach it is I teach the sweep step by step and I go to a mountain position. And then I add the very obvious thing is to, you have that arm trapped, you're ready to go to a Kimura. Then I teach the Kimura from keeping the mount or from dismounting, which is what I prefer to do. I prefer hmm. to dismount to side control, sit through. I feel like I have a better chance of finishing it that way. Yeah, 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 same. So then from there, I'm like, instead of continuously moving in down that direction, my next thing is, okay, I'm going to do this and you start pushing back on me. So what's what's my next best option now? I'm not going to force you to try and get you over. You're pushing back on me. My, my next option is I really have a post on my hand. I just scoot my ass towards my hand a little bit. You fall forward right into a guillotine. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that's option number two. I can't finish the guillotine, take the arm. Now I have like a crucifix sweep I can go into. From the crucifix sweep, I could dismount and go into a crucifix, right? Mm-hmm. Or I could just let go and go back to a mountain position, start attacking again from there. So I just basically break all these things down and all these options, and I just put them out in a way that makes sense. 
I'm curious though, how long have you been doing this? Is this something you were doing at White Belt, Blue Belt? I've been doing this for a long time because we had an instructor that came once a week. So during mm. the week when we wanted to train, we basically were teaching each other. So or, just or, out or any, of necessity then? Out of necessity, I was basically teaching right from day one. So like mm. anything I learned, I had to analyze it. So if we got together, we, we did it on a Saturday. On a Tuesday night, we would get together and our, the gym we had at the time had like a separate little mat room in it. So while there was a class going on in the other room, a bunch of us would get together and sometimes someone new would come in. Oh, what are you guys working on? Well, here's what we're working on, right? So I'd be able to teach that person what we were doing. So I started trying to break everything down, analyze it, and learn how to teach it right from the beginning. Wow. So at White Belt, you were doing this. Yeah. Now, granted, at that point, I was already like a brown belt in Taekwondo at the time. And I was teaching kids. So I had an idea on how to teach to begin with. It helped me to start analyzing this, this new art that I was learning to be able to teach it. So I've been yeah. actually teaching jujitsu as long as I've been training jujitsu. So yeah, so you kind of had that teaching foundation ready to go for BJJ. Yeah, exactly. What is it like to work with so many strangers, like at these camps, especially, and in different countries? I know you guys go to some beautiful areas, man. The Globetrotters, they go to Estonia, Iceland, they go to St. Bart's, and yeah, they, what is that like? Is culture clashes and everything? So the first camp I taught at was in Germany, wow. and that was also the first time I ever left the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a little worried, right? I lo- I also looked at the instructor list and I'm like, do I really belong on this list? You know, because <laughs> like, I know who all these guys are, but I know none of them know who I am. Right. So I was afraid that no one was going to go to my class with all these guys on. It was the last class of the day. It was like a Thursday dinner was going on at the same time. I'm like, man, I'm going to be sitting out there by myself. This is going to suck. <laughs> Rich well, is the closer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like 90 people showed up at the class. I was pretty much taken back by it. Wow. And it was like, all right, well, I've never taught more than 20 people at a time, maybe 30, right? I'm like, well, here we go, you know? And I just treated it like I was at home teaching a class. I was definitely nervous. I made sure I taught a class something I was very familiar with. All I did was a um, butterfly guard passing. And I, I kept it at the most basic level. And I had known one of the instructors who was at the camp. He was from uh, Netherlands. And me and him had talked on Facebook through the Globetrotters page a bunch of times. So although that was our first time meeting, I kind of felt comfortable with him. So I spoke to him. Hey, man, this is my class. Would you mind coming out, helping me out? So I was comfortable with him. And I treated it like I was home just teaching my class. And, uh, you know, it just w- within a couple minutes, I was just good. You know, everybody speaks English. No matter where I go, everybody speaks English, right? It's amazing. So they all they all understood me and I kept the class simple so it was easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to walk around and touch as many people in that room as I could during mm-hmm. that class. And after that, it just got really simple. Just treat it like, like I'm teaching a class at home. Were there any nuances you had to learn in terms of like, sometimes I hear some Europeans say, you know, slow down your English, you know, some people are speaking too fast and any other cultural things that you had to be aware of? No, not really, man. It it seemed like I was pretty well received. I, I don't talk a lot to begin with when I teach. And when I find like I am talking too much, I catch myself. I always apologize for it. The way I learn is explain what you're doing and do it once and let me go do it. When there's instructors that like talk way too much, my mind wanders mm-hmm. and I have to hope I have me a good too. partner who pays attention, right? So I try not to talk too much. I just try and show as much detail with as little extra talk as possible. I'll just get out what needs to be said. And then if anybody has any questions, it's funny. That very first class I taught, it was a very simple technique, you know, just flatten your partner, collect the leg and pass it, right? I 
said, all right, anybody have any questions? Silence in the room, right? It, it's weird, dude. Globe Trotter camps. I always try and like break the ice really quick with it and get people to the point where they're going to talk back to me when I talk. And yeah. it's so hard to get people to talk back, you know? So I taught this technique and I said, this is the first class I've ever taught. I said, does anybody have any questions? And nobody said anything. Everyone just looked Crickets. at me. I said, so nobody has any questions? Again, nothing. And I was like, I said, you know, not for nothing here, but if I was watching this, I would have questions right now. <laughs> so <laughs> one guy said, well, what questions would you have? I said, don't worry about it. Let's go try it. <laughs> so they went back and they say, sorry, doing the technique. And this is what basically broke the ice, you know? I was like, don't worry about it. Just go try it. About two minutes into it, I'm walking around and someone's like, hey, I got a question for you. I'm like, what's your question? And he started asking me a question. I said, hold up a second. I called everybody back up. I said, what's your question? And I took his question and I addressed it. And it kind of, it kind of loosened up the room and, you know, people started talking more and it made me feel better. And yeah, it, it's a wild experience, man. That's tricky trying to yeah. open people up. That's a whole art unto itself. Yeah. I try like when I go onto the floor and I, I always try to get it going quick, you know, by just like something humorous, you know, and it's just like you're met with blank stares and it's like, okay, it's going to be a long day. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing I do appreciate about your teaching style is you're very direct. There's not a lot of fluff. Yeah. And as you said, I'm, I'm someone too. I can't take a lot of additional verbose people like my mind just tends to wander, you know? Oh yeah. I, and I always try to let my partner know if I'm taking someone else's class, listen, dude, pay attention because I don't, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not like I'm being disrespectful or being rude. I just know that once the talking starts, my mind is going to be someplace else and I'm going to need you to be paying attention. Well, let's talk about uh, BJJ Fanatics, right? Because I know that you've got a couple instructionals there. There's lapel art. And what's the other one? Control Advance Attack. Tell me how those went. You're pre-planning for that. I imagine that was a crazy whiteboard or something or notes too. Yeah. The lapel art, I started doing that one a few years ago. I actually taught that three times at Globetrotter Camp. There's two videos of it, I think, on the uh, mm. Globetrotter's YouTube page. It started off simply as just a way to set up the arm bar. So I use the your lapel to trap your own arm and set up an arm bar. And then, and then I work initially the arm bar. And then it goes to like a whole series of sweeps and counters, depending on what you do. So it covers uh, sweeps, chokes, arm bars, back takes. It's a pretty extensive class. Yeah, it's uh, a four-part uh, series. Yeah, it's video. extensive. All of it Drill. is based off of using your lapel to trap your arm. So the other one is, is a little different. I'm not really necessarily teaching in a traditional way of teaching techniques, okay? So what I start off with is I have a way of controlling side control where I set my knees in a specific position and I like to use my top arm and get your head up off the mat, control your gi at the top of your shoulder and then bring you into me to get your head pinned away. So if you're looking away from me, you can't turn back into me anymore. And I'm mm. only using one arm to do it. So I don't like going for that typical under the head, far side underhook. Yeah. Uh, a lot of guys do that and, and close their hands together. I yeah. feel like, yeah, you could control me there and you could keep me from doing anything, but you're also keeping yourself from doing anything. Yeah. So I started working this other way because now I have my free hand here, which I can either start attacking on your arm. I can block your legs to start setting up neon belly advances through. And that whole video is based off of starting in that position and just advancing to other positions based off of if I just want to advance or if you do something. And I just basically go from position to position. And then I show the potential submissions that you can go for, but I don't show the submissions. So like you get to this position here and you can start attacking this, you can start attacking that. So the whole video is based on starting in side control, controlling that position, 
I think I initially start off, I, I advance to mount. I go to uh, what I call a Kimura mount position is when you go to that position where you're just lifting up your part to the side and you're stepping over and basically just sitting on their head mm-hmm. to set up a Kimura from like, a, I guess it would be like kind of like a, a north-south type position. And, and basically, I just, I just set it up and go from position to position, show the control from each position and how I advance from each position to set up my attacks. I know you just helped out mutual friend Kyle Sleeman on his new BJJ Fanatics yeah. video, driving many hours up to Boston, right, to to do all that stuff. But what's it like to be a BJJ Fanatics number one and, and to meet Bernardo and, and the whole thing? I actually love the vibe up there. They have, it's funny too, man. I, I went up there the first time, nervous as hell to begin with, right? And so they have two studios that are up there, right? And I'm in the one studio and the guy comes in and says, oh, uh, John's next door. Oh, really? Who's John? John Danner. I'm like, really? You got to put that kind of pressure on me, you know? <laughs> so uh, it's, it's like a great vibe. So I got to meet John and it was great. And he's in one studio doing his thing. I'm in a different studio doing my thing, right? Nice, nice. So it's like I get a second shot, right, to go back up and do the second video. And we got there a little bit early. So me and my friend Justin came up with me. He owns the edge where I teach up here. We're sitting in the hallway waiting for the guy to come who's going to film us. And Gordon Ryan comes walking down the hall. <laughs> so I'm like, First Dan and her, now Gordon Ryan, right? When am I going to get a break with who's here with me, right? (laughs) It's a great vibe, man. The guys up there treat you really well, and they make you like just very comfortable. And you're talking to a camera as if it's a class. It could take a little bit of getting used to uh, if you're not used to talking to a camera. But uh, it's just a real good vibe. It's comfortable. The guys up there are real good people. And, uh, you know, you got to meet some cool people up there as well. Is there a lot of like uh, retaking and stuff like that too? Not really. The only place I find where where I had to do anything more than once was like the intro or the outro because anything else is like teaching a class, you know? I taught these moves, I don't know how many times before, right? So basically, instead of a class in front of me, I'm just teaching the move, but I'm teaching it to a camera instead. The one thing that took a little bit of getting used to for me was not getting the response. Well, I teach something. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, if I teach you, you a move and I that. say to you, and I say to you, hey, so did you understand that? Do you need to see that again? Do you have any questions about it? A lot of times you're going to be like, yeah, let me just see what you're doing with your arm when you come to that other side, right? Sure. Not having that that instant feedback, you kind of got to make sure in your, your head that you're getting everything covered because yeah. you know, there's no one there. To, I mean, obviously my partner could turn around and say to me, hey, um, what'd you do with your arm here? But you don't have the instant feedback of someone saying, hey, man, I can't see what you're doing with your hand. So that's the so thing. That probably, are you documenting that stuff too then? Yeah. Make sure to cover this, that. But basically what I did going into it is I worked with a partner, my friend who videoed with me. We got together a couple of times. I went through everything. I had everything written down I wanted to do. And I started going through it with him and changed the order a little bit, make sure everything made sense in, in the order I was videoing it. Making sure with him paying attention, making sure that I was covering everything that needed to be covered for it to you know come through. Your thoughts on the future of jujitsu? You know, you're so based in, uh, I don't want to, say only like foundational jujitsu, you know, and if it's a beautiful thing, I love it. Yeah. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on as an observer of someone who's been in this thing for so long, what does it look like to you? Well, I have a couple of different opinions on this. First off, I think everything continuously rotates foot locks and leg attacks. I started learning the leg attacks and all that stuff before everyone took jujitsu. Mm-hmm. So I was taking Taekwondo at the time and when I took Taekwondo, it was different than it is now. Taekwondo, back in the day, you learned how to fight. 
granted there was some fluff in it you learned how to fight for the most part and the instructor who i was learning with he was into basically just learning as much about fighting as he could because he wanted to develop his own system which he eventually did which is a very um direct no-nonsense system so he had trained under eric paulson's combat submission wrestling so in the Taekwondo I was taking, we were doing submission wrestling as well. Mm-hmm. So when we sparred in Taekwondo, if you throw a kick, you're not allowed to catch the kick, right? Because there's no ground fighting. When we were sparring, if you threw a kick and you got your kick caught and you got taken down, you better know how to fight on the ground. So we were doing leg locks way back when. So somehow leg locks fell out of favor and Danaher and, and the death squad brought them back around, right? When they showed how effective they could be in a sport setting, right? Mm-hmm. So I think things come back around because leg locks aren't new. That whole leg attack system isn't new. I mean, Danaher turned it into a science. I give him a lot of credit for what he's as technical as he developed it. But leg locks have been around forever. Mm-hmm. They kind of fell out of favor. They came back into favor. And now if you watch Gordon Ryan now, that, that last Abu Dhabi, what did he win seven matches by like rear naked choke? So he's going back around as well, right? Mm-hmm. So now where do I see jujitsu going? And it's very unfortunate what I'm about to say. I feel it's going the same way Taekwondo went, right? Because it's gotten so popular. And anytime anything hits that level of popularity, unfortunately, things of it get watered down mm-hmm. because some people who don't deserve to be where they are end up where they are <laughs> sometimes, right? And mm-hmm. uh, with a jujitsu academy popping up on every corner, it can't help but weaken the system, I think. So what do you um, mean specifically by watering down and weakening? Certain people are, are teaching who, in my opinion, shouldn't be teaching. People so get for moved. you, it starts from the top then? Well, people get academy. moved along, right? Because you're training for 20 years and you got all this time in, so you start getting moved along. Do you necessarily deserve it? I, I don't know. Like in a lot of martial arts, you put your time in, right? And you're going to just keep getting your belts. And it seems like not everyone's doing it. So I don't want to like get everyone sending me emails and saying, what are we talking about? You're crazy on what we're talking about. But to a degree, I I see it happening, right? To a degree. And it can get out of control if it keeps going, right? The rule sets that a lot of the sport jujitsu bring into it. So you got all these rule sets now. And that also will water a system down now because you'll have schools who are just training to a rule set. So now you'll have advanced students who can only perform to a specific rule set based on competition. Okay. And First and foremost, it should be you shouldn't be able to you should have to take be able to take care of yourself in a real life situation. So for you, it's self-defense first. I think it should be for everybody, right? You know, even if you just want to do it for sport. I've heard stories about Taekwondo competitions where fights have broken out, where competitors were getting beaten up by people in the stands. That should never happen, right? Because if you've trained this martial art your whole life, if something goes down, you should be able to handle it. And I think if you get to that point where you're just training so much to a rule set that when it gets outside that rule set, you may not know what to do. You may know what to do. You may freeze under that situation because it's not controlled. So I think that Mm -hmm. in a way waters it down a bit. I hope I'm wrong. It does seem inevitable. I think you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of these. I think it's going to be a spectrum, like you said, of of things. These probably watered down academies and these specialty type of academies, these self-defense academies. Yeah. I was teaching something once and someone said to me, well, is that legal? I don't don't remember what it was I was doing. And I was like, you know, when you get to this position, uh, if you don't get what you want, I said, look, his hand is right here. Just take the wrist lock, break his wrist, whatever. Is that legal? I don't know. I don't train to a rule set. I'm mm. teaching you jujitsu. If you want to go into a competition, right? Go onto the competition's website. I'll go on with you and we'll go through the rules and we'll see what's legal. But as far as what I'm going to teach you, I'm not going to teach you to a rule set. 
So leg lock, heel hooks leg, leg, a white belt. If I'm teaching the heel hook, if you can't do it in competition, know the rule set of where you're competing. But I'm basically teaching you everything you need to know to the best of my ability, which is going to keep you safe in the street. If you have to protect yourself, you protect your family. I want to teach jujitsu as completely as I can teach jujitsu, especially being older now and not competing anymore myself or anything like that. I want to be the best teacher I can be, right? I want I want to be able to give back as much as I can possibly give back to jujitsu. And teaching to a rule set, in my opinion, would be selling my students short. You want to compete? Let's sit down and look at the rules and then we'll adjust. Did you enjoy competing? No. No, I didn't do it a lot. I didn't do it a lot because I don't, I don't like it. Reason I don't like it is because I don't have that competitiveness and I don't really care. So I'm not going to, I'll never cut weight. It's like, what weight are you going to fight at? Oh, get a scale. What do I weigh right now? Okay, that's the weight I'm going to fight at, you know? So I, I refuse to cut weight and I've always been a little bit heavier for my size. So without cutting, I'm going against guys much bigger than me. I don't have this like competitiveness within me where... I have to win at all costs. So mm-hmm. I was always very nonchalant, you know, and my instructor didn't like that about me. So you I didn't would, want to I did quote a, unquote test yourself? Yeah, no, not, <laughs> it didn't mean that much to me. I did a fight one time and it was probably like maybe 15 minutes before the fight. And I was just, I was still sitting down. I had a pair of shorts on and uh, my instructor came up and he goes, aren't you going to warm up? And I was like, I feel pretty good, you know? And he just looked at me and walked away. And at that point <laughs> I was like, Competing's not for me because it's just it just isn't gonna go well. It's like I'm not gonna I'm not the guy that's gonna be on the side mat rolling around with a partner drilling stuff to try and go on and, and compete. I'm just gonna sit there ten minutes before I gotta go on. I'm gonna throw on my gi pants. I'm gonna throw on my top and I'm gonna go. So I didn't care enough about the competitive part of it to put the effort into you know. Hey, it's important to know your lane. Yeah. I love teaching. I love learning. Right. So I go to the camps. I mean, you, you saw me at the camp. I don't spend a load of time on the mat. I, I watch the classes when I'm interested in, and I get out there and I try when it comes to roll and I'm very selective of who I roll with. And I'm, my goal there is to try and take in what I can and just be the best instructor I can be and just continue to pass knowledge on to as many people as I can. What makes a great teacher? I guess basically just paying attention to your students. First of all, you don't, to tie that in competition together, you don't need to be a great competitor to be a great teacher. And and with sports in general, the best coaches weren't always the best players and the best players don't always make good coaches, right? So I think basically you need to be able to pay attention to your students and what they need. Having a curriculum is important to a degree. Mm -hmm. It's good to not just be like haphazardly picking a hat full of techniques in it and I'm all the way out to the academy, pull out a technique <laughs> and say, okay, we're doing this today, right? Yeah, yeah. It's good to have a, a curriculum that kind of flows and works together so you continuously grow your jujitsu. You also need to be able to pay attention to your students and see what they need most. I don't know if that's making enough sense or not, but uh, I hear a lot of people say what makes a good teacher is the ability to listen, listen to your students. And I guess that kind of goes hand in hand, paying attention to what your students need, what's mm-hmm. happening on the mat, not being like, I got my cell phone in my hand the whole time here. Not being on my cell phone while my students are drilling, right? You know, (laughs) see what's going on, see where they need improvement, watch them roll, see where they're having their problems, what they need to improve upon. Every time you do this, this happens to you. If you just took this hand and put it here, that would stop happening to you. If I'm not paying attention to my students, I can't make those corrections and I can't continuously get them better. So I think just having an idea how to put together a class that makes sense and just paying attention to your students and what they're doing. So it's still a very much a individual relationship for you. Yeah. It's not like let's not like a system and you know just put it on autopilot. No, not at all. A lot of times what I'll do is 
after class, I only teach one class a week, full class. Everything else I do is private, right? So I'll, I'll always have a, a student come up to me after class, say, hey, man, you know, when I was rolling with so-and-so, you know, this kept happening. And every time I do that, I, I have the same problem. And, and I always say to them, send me a text, exactly what you just told me, and we'll do that. Are you going to be here next week? You're going to be here next week? That'll be our class next week. So it sounds like I'm molding the whole class to one person, but I'm really not because it's go- it's something that they all theoretically need to work on stuff. So mm-hmm. you're having this problem. So the next class I'll start, I'll say, hey, you know, uh, Kevin said last week he was having a problem where every every time he got to this position, this was happening to him. So I think this is something we all, we, we should all work on. Does anybody else have that issue? Yes, no, maybe. And I just develop a class around that because he needs to work on it. And, and I'm sure they all do, you know? The thing I find is we all think our problems are unique, but when someone gets the balls to ask the question, everyone's like, yeah, 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 you know? <laughs> And that's what it, co- it comes down to. Every, no one wants to be the one to ask the question. Everyone's afraid to ask the yeah. stupid question, right? Yeah. I always say at the class, it doesn't get as many laughs as it does in my head. You know, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Only stupid people who ask questions, but you know, it never gets the laugh. But you know, but it is true. There is no stupid questions. If you have a question, if you don't understand something, regardless of how stupid you think it may seem, if you're thinking it, there's probably at least one or two other people in this room thinking it, you know? And it always turns out that way. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have my ideas. I know what I want to teach on a regular basis, but I have no problems deviating from that if someone's having a whole uh, big problem with stuff mm. uh, and taking a class and, and putting the whole class around that, you know? So what makes a great student? <laughs> listen, listen, <laughs> pay attention again, <laughs> right? Asking questions, it sounds like too, huh? Yeah, if you don't know something, ask the question, you know, uh, pay attention, listen. And here's the other thing I think that makes a good student. I have two students, right, who if I teach something, when we start rolling, they're always doing what I taught that night. They're always going for it. We get together on Sundays for a little open mat. They're trying to do what I taught them on Thursday night, right? So I think what happens far too often in, I'm going to say it's probably pretty widespread, right? You teach a class. You go over some techniques, right? And okay, okay, we're going to roll for the next half hour. And it turns into the Abu Dhabi finals. Yeah. Totally. Okay. And I try and always stress to my students, hey, listen, guys, we're all on the same team here. Our job isn't to beat each other. Our job is to help each other get better. So yeah. I taught an arm bar tonight, right? From a guard. When we roll, try and get to guard, try and go for an arm bar. Oh, well, he did it too. So he knows I'm going to go for it. Even more reason why you should be going for it. Because now you're going to know if it'll work in a live situation. You're going to know how he's going to defend it. So you need to know, you're going to figure out what adjustments you need to make, or you're not going to figure out what adjustments you need to make. And you're going to ask me, and I'm going to help you make those adjustments. So you're going to get better at it. So basically pay attention. And when you roll after class, try and do the things you were taught. Don't go back to just pinning someone down and like dropping all your weight on them and squeezing them. Because now three minutes goes by and you're in that same position. He can't get out. You can't advance because you're afraid that if you let go, he's going to get on top of you. To be a good student, you're just taught something. Try and do it when you roll. Don't default back to survival mode or Abu Dhabi mode. What's piquing your interest right now in terms of your own jujitsu game? I'll be honest with you. One of the things that I've been doing a lot lately is mm-hmm. I've been doing solo fundamental drills a lot basically for my own body. So are we talking about like movement? Movement, mostly different types of rolls. I like to do like backwards rolls, right? Where I'm, I'm rolling, just rolling on my back, you know, working figure fours, going up into like a combat base position, going up into a combat base, stepping through for a shot, stepping up, stepping out, rolling over my shoulders, just rolling back and forth, forward rolls, backward rolls, 
rolling over my back shoulder, going into a sprawl, going into like a, a Gramby type roll, just all kinds of fundamental movements, which will increase my mobility and keep me moving. So I've been doing that. And like I said to you earlier, I've been doing a lot of work from closed guard, just going back to fundamental Roger Gracie jujitsu. I went on YouTube and I just started watching. I didn't know much about Roger Gracie. I, and I hate to admit that, but I didn't know much about him up mm -hmm. until last year sometime. Right. And I started watching his competition videos, not instructional videos, competition. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that like, he's going against like world-class top competitors. He got, he gets all these guys into his closed guard. He works on getting that arm across their body and then he's on their back choking them. Okay. So that's an extremely fundamental move that we, we had talked about earlier tonight, right? It's an extremely fundamental move. And here's one of the best in the world doing that successfully to another one of the best in the world, right? Yeah. So that says something best. about the move. So I've been doing a lot of that because it's it's a nice, slow, steady game for me. And I've been doing all of those solo movement drills. Like I'll make stuff up and I'll just roll around on the mat, try and just like make it make sense from move to move. Like I'll, I'll sit down and do like a back step, a sit through, roll over my shoulder, do a backwards roll into a Gramby and just move. That helps me with my shoulders. It helps me with my hips and it keeps me mobile. I'm 55, mm -hmm. right? So I need to, on top of just doing jujitsu, I need to do things that are going to keep me strong and keep me able to move. I can't be lazy with the mobility like I was 30 years ago, right? Or 20 right, years right. ago. So warm-ups are critical too. And that. Yeah. I mean, and I'll sit there and do that for an hour and I feel really good afterwards. It's interesting that you mentioned Hodger. And when I'm talking to a lot of you black belts that have been doing it for so long, way back when I interviewed Michael Lira Jr., who's an autos absolute, you know, just coming out of competition, a lot of autos and a lot of competition writers opening his academy in Colorado, Logos. That was one of the things I was asking him about. It's like, I'm like, what's interesting you right now too? And he said, uh, the fundamentals. He says, I'm going back to the fundamentals. And then I saw a pattern with a lot of you black belts and especially you seasoned black belts with this, just falling back in love with the fundamentals and someone like Hodger, you know, admiring Hodger so much. So it seems like you guys have just filtered out all this stuff. Yeah. I think that stuff is all really cool. You know, it's cool. I, you know, Baron, if you could, if you could do a Baron Bolo roll and I mean, you were sitting in front of each other. The next thing I know you're on my back. That's pretty cool. You know, it's not my game and it never will be my game, you know, but I'm trying to keep myself as mobile and I'm trying to roll around and do all that. I just know that, you know, that's, it's, that's not a part of my game. So I need to do all that solo just to keep my body moving good. But I know that when I start rolling with somebody, I know if I can't be on top of you, <laughs> I know that my best thing to do is to get you in my guard and keep it tight and just start working to get your arms across to start setting up my arm bars. With my lapel system, I like to trap that arm. A lot of times I can't get that arm on my body where I need it to be to start the whole system. Mm -hmm. So that open that starts opening up chokes mm -hmm. and it's all from all closed guard stuff and it's all very fundamental. My goal is to, as I trap your arm with that, buck you out. The whole thing starts breaking your posture down, right? So once I get your posture broken down, I'm getting a hand inside your lapel. Mm -hmm. And you know whether my guard's open or closed right now, that hand inside your lapel is what's going to keep you between my legs, right? So from there, I start working the gi out. I start working the arm. And then closing my guard again and using that as a way to try and get that arm up onto my body and from here to here, right? Well, from one side of my body to the other side of my body. <laughs> Thank you. Right? Yeah, Sorry about that. <laughs> just pointing to his hip and the other side of his hip. Yeah. I know you can hip. see me, so I'm like here to here, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so from, you know, your right arm is on my left side, right? So I need to take your right arm and get it to my right side. And that's what my whole system is based off of with that arm trap system, right? 
and all that is is basic fundamental jujitsu. I'm using your gi to do it, which kind of adds, I guess, a level of technicality to it. If that was no gi, I would be trying to keep your broken down by controlling your neck and trying to like control that arm over the same way. If I can't get the arm over, maybe take my body away from it. We'll add the videos of Rich's on the Facebook page for context too. You know, can you tell me of a time that you wanted to quit and why? <laughs> this morning? <laughs> Saturday morning when I woke up with a, a real bad neck issue and I couldn't move my right arm. There was never a time I wanted to quit. I can't say there was ever a time I wanted to quit. I've had setbacks that are, are very, um, I don't know, disheartening is, is the right word maybe. Like I'm not even kidding. Saturday morning I woke up. I, I had gotten slammed on my head a long time ago and I ruptured two vertebrae. C, C2 and C5 were ruptured to the point where gel was leaking out and pressing on my spinal cord. So that went on for, I want to say maybe like a two year period where I was really uncomfortable in a lot of pain before I finally found a doctor who was able to do a procedure. I didn't want to get any surgeries done. So I found a doctor who was able to do this procedure where it was called nucleoplasty, right? While I was awake, (laughs) he put two needles through the front of my neck and popped into the vertebrae, into the um, actual disc itself. And then they put electrical leads into it and apply electricity to it. And the theory is that that evaporates some of that disc gel that's inside the disc in your vertebrae and it takes the pressure off the spinal cord and that worked it helped me it took all the pain away but from time to time i have issues with my neck and when i have the neck issues the pain is in my shoulder and my arm so when that happens it doesn't make me want to quit but it makes me wonder how i could continue to go on to continue to teach and continue to do everything i'm doing if i this happened to me I woke up like this Saturday. I guess it was a combination of whatever I was doing on Friday, you know, Jitsu Thursday night, privates again on Friday. So I guess the combination of everything on top of sleeping probably in an awkward position irritated it. And I woke up Saturday morning and today was the first day I did jujitsu since it happened. You know, I canceled everything up until today. And I wonder, you know, what if this happened you know, when I, I'm away and I have to teach, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how, how am I going to get through that? But I always do work on the rehab exercises that I do and I'm fine again. So when, when I get little setbacks like that, it's, it's frustrating, but it's never made me want to say, you know, why should just quit? Because what else am I going to do? You know, I've been doing martial arts in one form or another for most of my life. Hey you man, know, you're uh, a musician. You're an actor. I saw that you're a SAG actor again. Yeah, I I, I do a little bit. That I want to quit. <laughs> <laughs> oh really? Why you want to quit acting? That and music are probably the two most frustrating areas in my life. <laughs> music is something I've been doing since I was like twelve. I started playing the bass when I was like twelve years old, and I've been in bands that have been you know this close mm-hmm. to making it. Right? Oh, you know, yeah. we're yeah. we're right there, and then something always happens. You know, that it doesn't get past that little, and everyone's got that story. You know, Mm -hmm. I did, um, I was able to put out two, two records over the years back in the eighties with the hair band. We put out a record. I think we sold like 200, right? 200 copies. Yeah. (laughs) And then again, in the early two thousands with another band I was in, we put out a record and that I really thought was going to be good. And, you know, we sold like 1100 copies. I mean, I still sell random songs here and there on iTunes, but that then that was the end of that. That's the most frustrating area in my life, music. Acting is frustrating for very similar reasons, you know? It's a lot. You know, you audition, 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 you get something. Then you audition, you audition, you audition, you audition. And it's just like you're constantly working and the payoff isn't always... This is minuscule, you know, huh? And I do it because I love it and it's fun. 
But at the same time, there's times it's just like, you got to ask, you know, what, what am I doing this for? You know, at least with jujitsu and personal training, it's what I do as far as income from it. I mean, acting, I've gotten some income from music. I've gotten income from as well, but that's always been very sporadic. Whereas jujitsu and personal training is where I basically make a living and quitting that is never an option. <laughs> no. I love jujitsu, man. It, it hurts sometimes, but it's the one thing I, I probably love the most, I would say at this point. Well, let's make you some more money. Where can the listeners <laughs> find out more about you and your wonderful instructionals where they can buy and, and research you and support you and find out everything about you? Okay. So as far as I go, I do have a website, richsab.com. It's basically, it started out as just a personal blog where I just wrote that was on my mind. I actually took a lot of it down because some of it may be I've been fun. reading it. There's all some, kinds of some, different stuff. Some, the some DNA the story is fascinating. Some of the stuff I put up was like borderline offensive to some people. So I started off with a personal blog and now I'm trying to like starting to transition it over. To, I want to try and transition it over to like a member site. But right now it's just got some basic information about me and Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rich Sab. I'm active on all three of them. And uh, you always email me, uh, sabjits, S-A-B-J-I-T-S at yahoo.com. You can go to BJJ Fanatics and just under search fighters, just Rich Sab and both of my videos come up. And if you want to get the videos, hit me up through one of the uh, social medias and I'll send you a discount code if there's not one available up on the site already. And make sure to check out Rich's stuff on BJJ Globetrotters videos as well. Search for, yeah. for Rich's stuff there. Go to a camp where Rich is teaching at. Yeah, I'll be at the Arizona camp in March. March. And I'll be in Maine in June and then Estonia in July. I'm also going to Josh's fire and water camp. I'll be teaching there in about two weeks. Josh to, Janice. I'll be there. I want to say it's the 18th and 19th or 19th and 20th. That's going to be fantastic. Looking forward to jumping to Lake Michigan in uh, Oh, man. In, uh, February. I don't know how you do it, man. <laughs> that's <it's> terrifying. <laughs> terrifying to me too, but that's why I do it, you know? Go check out all, all of uh, Rich's stuff and uh, everything there, like I said. And I'm Adolfo Fronto, your host. Thanks again for listening to Forever White Belt. Give us the five stars on Spotify, iTunes, and everywhere you listen to your, your podcatcher of choice. And uh, I really appreciate it. Rich, thank you so much for your time. Uh, couldn't be more uh, of an honor for myself. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to have me on. It means a lot to me, man.